Welcome to the Dharma Spring. Ah, good evening. Hmm, <laughs> wintry evening, or something out there. This koan that uh, joined us in our meditation showed up uh, a few weeks ago for me, so we've been hanging out together for a little while and exploring and enjoying looking at things and me looking at my experience and um, what I've noticed hanging out with it. So talk about that the journey, share that with you, then we'll have time, you know, what came up for you to explore that, whether it's in a similar vein or a totally different vein, doesn't matter, it's really, well, so what happened for you, knowing you've had a shorter time to hang out with it than I have, so I've got maybe a little bit more to, a bit more territory to, uh, to un- unfold, unwrap, um, so a student comes to see Fayin and says, Reverend, I am Wei Zhao, what is Buddha? Fayan says, you are Wei Zhao. Yeah? And I'm not misspeaking. There's not a comma there that says, you are Wei Zhao. He's not saying, you are Buddha. He's saying, you are Wei Zhao. So, fill in your own name there, really. Or, you're Wei Zhao. We're all Wei Zhao. He's asking this question, what is Buddha? And we're told, you are you. Emphatically. Yeah? So that's interesting. It's uh, the feeling of it to me is I'm reaching out and I'm being handed back myself. Yeah. So I go, oh, what's that about? I like to notice, well, what does our mind do? Um, because the habits of mind can be so quick and um, hard to notice because they're habits. I might be looking at what's happened three or four steps beyond. So it takes some time to meet the koan again and again, then try to catch, what does my mind do initially? What's that initial territory that it goes to? And the initial territory is kind of this delight of, oh, then when I say to Fayen, so what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? Why are you saying that? But there's that delight initially, but then again, so, so what does that mean? Why are you saying that? And I can imagine Fayan saying, you are Wei Zhao, in response, which doesn't explain anything. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get it, but I mean, why, why, what is it? You are Wei Zhao. It's like, okay. So then I, I begin to wonder, what does it mean to look at it myself? Why, why is he doing that? And an initial thing that comes up is, well, maybe he's saying, I, as Wei Zhao, that's enough. That's the territory I need to look at. It's my life. So, that's enough. Look at that. Land there more fully, perhaps. Maybe that's what he means. But then my mind goes, maybe he's saying, you know, you're Wei Zhao, and you've got a lot more stuff to work on before you can even think about what Buddha is. Yeah? <laughs> Maybe it's like, hey, you're a Wei Zhao. Slow down, slow down. Just be Wei Zhao. 
we'll get there someday, you know. That's what my line does. So then I want to ask, okay, so do you mean this or do you mean that? And of course, he's just going to say, you are Wei Zhao, again. <laughs> um, not going to answer directly as I'd like and, and settle it and solidify it as to what is the purpose or the meaning behind him returning myself to myself. So I figure I just stop asking him that question and just keep wondering about it myself and looking at it. And at the sort of, so I start just saying to myself, I am Wei Zhao. I am Wei Zhao. And looking for meaning still, looking for something to crop up to hold on to. But I notice things aren't, they get less elaborate. There's, there's fewer things to try to sort out. And it just comes to the experience of wondering. Yeah? So even the looking for meaning begins to fade, and I'm just with, I am Wei Zhao. I am Wei Zhao. And then I notice even that begins to fade. It's kind of a settling in and a resting in my being happens. Still with curiosity and wonder, but not for anything in particular. Um, instead of that looking beyond, it's like the, the looking beyond, that arc gets closer and closer till maybe it just fades and there's being here as Wei Zhao. Then I'm not sure if the question fades or not, but there's just an openness and a, maybe a sense of wonder. And it feels settled, but also not. Yeah, that resting, a dynamic resting perhaps, I don't know. Just landing in that place. And that seems to be comforting. And there's something there, but I can't put words to it. I can't capture it, but there's something about landing here as me. Yeah. So, looking into my own life as Andrew, <laughs> for experiences like this, the encouragement when working with koans is, where is this, where do you find this already? Where are you living this? Or where have you lived this experience already? Um, what came to mind was a memory it's from a few years ago, but it happened to come up last month during the discussion of uh, after the talk I offered. So it was a freshly uncovered older memory. <laughs> and it, yeah, I, it related to this for me because it had to do with someone asked about prayer and what is, you know, do you pray? Just like to the general group, do you pray and what's that about? And um, before I get to the memory, I just had to explain, or I'm going to, I don't know if I have to, give a background of my relationship with prayer, um, which is not very consistent or good. <laughs> it depends on who's looking. But apart from like a two-year period when I was deep into Christianity and I felt, you know, in my opinion, was engaging in a more sincere and maybe pure form of spiritual prayer, most of the prayer I engaged in throughout my life growing up and um, as a younger person which wasn't that often. It was also, that was the, the quality of it, is only when in need. <laughs> so my prayers were, help, get me out of this. That kind of prayer. Or, okay, bargain, I'll do this and that if you just do that, you know, that kind of prayer. So for me, that's what prayer had been mainly. That's my association, is reaching beyond this, trying to get something to, to soothe me, to make this difficult situation easier, 
give me some hope, give me something else, a promise, you know. Or let me just put my thoughts into that other place as a way of not fully being where I'm at. Um, And again, this is as a kid, so I messed up, I did something bad, please don't let me get caught, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's my association mainly with prayer, personally. Um, So this is a few years ago, driving up I-25, and I hadn't, I know I hadn't done any kind of prayer in that way for a very long time. And I don't know what the situation was at that time, but I know I was going through something difficult. And probably a sigh like that happened. And I looked over up to the sky, so I looked up and out. And I noticed that impulse to call on something beyond started to rise in me, but then it just stopped. I was like, no. And that settling came in. And I just noticed that. It's like, that didn't feel like my way anymore. It didn't feel natural to me anymore, or the habit of it had faded. I don't know. There was just something inauthentic about it, really. And I didn't think much about it then. I just noticed that, oh, I landed here in my situation, not trying to get out of it. And the way I look at it now, meaning thinking about it today, (laughs) for the first time really going, hmm, what was going on there? It was maybe that thing of this practice, our practice. A lot of it is about our self being returned to itself, coming to this life we have landing in it um, and working from that place and it felt like that kind of ah, let me just be here this is difficult it's hard to get through I don't want to struggle with it but this is it so that's the feeling of that self being handed back to me by myself in that moment and since then I haven't had any kind of moments like that yet who knows what will happen you know, who knows what catastrophes await? <laughs> and I'm, so I'm, I'm curious still to see what happens rolling on from here. But um, So I, I credit you know, doing this practice for many years that helped me be able to land more fully in my life, in myself. And it was myself, kind of, that gave myself that moment. Yeah. So the self returning to the self. <laughs> And I think a way this is spoken of often in Zen, Buddhism, Eastern traditions, maybe just Zen and Buddhism, um, is kind of looking at your own experience, depending upon your own experience, having your own experience, and that you can trust it. You can trust your experience, your life, what you're going through, you can trust and so, yeah, I, I, I feel that there. But I also feel there's something even beneath that that's interesting to notice. And it might relate more to that resting that I went through as wage out, coming to that place where the questions and the looking for meaning stop and there's just the resting and abiding there. So not only is it the experiences I'm having in my life, it's beneath that, that I have the capacity to experience. I am able to experience. 
I am able to go through joys and sorrows. I have this capacity and this ability. And it's not confined, it's open. So, you know, the experience is a particular situation, but there's something that precedes that, and that again is that ability to have an experience. That's myself, that being of mine, yeah, of each of us. When we come and sit in meditation, we connect with that. We have whatever's going through our minds, our bodies, as we breathe in and out and stay silent. But we're also resting in a place that is holding the space in which all that is happening. In that way of being, in that self, yeah. So, it's really lovely. It really, I was like, ah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it feels very nourishing, supportive. And that deep resting, again, as wage out, just, okay, I can wonder and see what happens. Nothing particularly to do, everything possible. Yeah. So it turns out in one of the books I'm making my way through, um, this territory is illuminated and, in my opinion, spoken of in a very beautiful way. So I want to share some of it here. This is, um, the book's called Awakened Cosmos. It's by David Hinton, who's a writer and translator. And the, real, the gift of people, of our time, really, that we get to practice in this time where, you know, go back 50 years or so, and the translations of texts came primarily through scholars, Western scholars, who could read the language and understood some of, you know, Chinese is a very different language than English. In this case, we're looking at Chinese. They understood the structure of language and what was behind it and why it was the way it was, but they were still Westerners as scholars translating. Over time, you know, in the past 50 years-ish, we've developed people not only with the capacity to read the language and understand it, but they've also practiced the ways of the people from that culture. And that's like David Hinton. He practices meditation, Chan, Zen, Chan in Chinese. And the thing is about Chinese language is written language, classical Chinese, there's no, there are just verbs without any tense, without any ings or anything. It's just a verb. And there are objects, which could be subjects or objects, but you don't really know. <laughs> it's just kind of splattered out there. Here are all these words. And in order to translate it, you have to try to be that person who wrote that poem and understand what they were experiencing to try to make it make sense. So the Western scholars, before you know, being deeply steeped in practice, could do that somewhat, but it's still you know, understanding through their Western interpretation of what it might have been like to be that person at that moment. Then someone like Hinton, who has a practice, is still going to get it wrong, <laughs> but maybe in a more beautiful way because of steeping himself in the practices and the culture. And this particular book is all about, around um, a poet named Dufu, who was not only steeped in Taoism and Chan because it was his culture, but individually it was what he engaged in personally in his practice. So that sensibility was there. So I'm just going to 
read Hinton's translation of the poem and just feel it, experience it. And after that, I'm going to move to the original. What he does in this book is he provides the original Chinese characters and then the direct um, literal translation. Then he gives his translation of that and then he talks about it. So here's first his translation of a, of a poem. First moon. Thin slice of ascending light, radiant arc tipped aside bellied dark. The first moon appears and, barely risen beyond ancient frontier passes, edges into clouds. Silver, changeless, the star river spreads across mountains empty in their own cold. Lucent frost dusts the courtyard. Chrysanthemum blossoms clotted there with swollen dark. I mean, to me, that's just, wow. I, I can feel, I can kind of be there and see those things happen. And wonder about them, yeah. So here's the original, Chinese. Literal translation. First moon. Radiant, thin, crescent, begin, rise. Shadow, slant, wheel, not yet settled. Sparse, ascend, ancient frontier beyond. Already hidden, evening cloud edge. River, star river, not change color. Borderland mountain, empty of itself, cold. Courtyard before, before has white frost. Dark whole chrysanthemum blossom clump. <laughs> so, quite different, yeah? <laughs> so, how does somebody meet those words and come up with the poem that he came up with? Um, and so, here's what Hinton says about his approach, his understanding of being Dufu as the best that he can. This wide-open, minimalist structure makes the poem a form of spiritual practice in which the reader must fill in all this absence with presence. Empty mind at the boundaries of its true, wordless form. There, one inhabits a place where each time the word moon is uttered, the word and the moon itself emerge together into existence at that generative origin moment. Words emerge from the grammar's generative emptiness in exactly the same way that thoughts emerge from the empty ground of consciousness, and things emerge from the generative emptiness at the heart of the cosmos. And of course, the generative source in all three realms is one and the same. Although we can describe that origin place or tell stories about it, to actually dwell there is to inhabit a place prior to thought and language, and inner wilds about which nothing can be said. In this radically different conception of language, we encounter the tantalizing fact that to translate a Chinese poem into English is to fundamentally misrepresent it, because the mimetic, imitative function of English inevitably erases that generative cosmology with its altered sense of time. You know, as he described this, it's like that was my experience hanging out as Wei Zhao, being returned to something, returned to something. 
And what he speaks of being returned to is this generative emptiness. Emptiness or vastness, as we, we often call it. The vastness. That's generative, life-giving. Yeah, I like to, another way I talk about it is the vast, undifferentiated potential of our being. It's fully there, just yet, hasn't yet come forth and turned into anything. But it can, yeah. And so the move here is how to get as close to that moment of things being generated and appearing together simultaneously and capture it as of that poem. Yeah. So com- for comparison, here's a poem, the same poem translated by somebody else. I don't know much about this person and how steep they are in the tradition, but it's quite different, I think. Judge for yourself. New moon. The bright, thin new moon appears, tipped askew in the heavens. It no sooner shines over the ruined fortress than the evening clouds overwhelm it. The Milky Way shines unchanging over the freezing mountains of the border. White frost covers the garden. The chrysanthemums clot and freeze in the night. It just feels like somebody observing from the outside describing a situation, not living within it, to me. And I feel, you know, there's these um, these three places are represented in the koan. It's like this third place is the place of ideas and meaning and things being a little more solid and formed. So when Wei Zhao says, I am Wei Zhao, what is Buddha? He might be, I might be, coming more from that third place. You are Wei Zhao is taking me to that second place of meeting and emerging. Yeah. Inviting me to be there instead of in the idea place. Instead of too much in that idea place. And then my hanging out with it and exploring it and having, looking for meaning and ideas kind of dropping away felt like a returning to the first place of just things emerging and being, or not yet merged, things being, ready to emerge, the potential fully there. Yeah. Hmm. So, I'm just going to read the, the first two lines to give a feel of these in succession, moving from the potential into the form, and then just, just see how this feels, the difference. Radiant, thin, crescent, begin, rise. Shadow, slant, wheel, not yet settled. Thin slice of ascending light, radiant arc, tipped aside, belly to dark. The bright, thin, new moon appears, tipped askew in the heavens. I think, you know, the, where this lights up for me is in our lives, we're, this process is going on. We're coming from that generative place all the time. Having the experience, going through that into the second place. Feeling the feelings, having the perspectives. And then we can tell stories about it. And that's kind of moving into the third place. Because then we tell a story about it, then we tell stories about the story. What it meant 
what it means in a bigger picture, how it's always been that way, you know, all those kind of stories we attach to the stories of the original happening. And I think a lot of times we live from that third place, so much so that when we're having those generative experiences, they're being compared to the stories that we're holding. And they are likely affirming those stories. Where, you know, does this match up with what I believe I am or what I believe the world is? And we tend to, if it is not affirming the story, we seem to think, well, that experience must be wrong because this story is solid and it's been here a long time. So the invitation in this practice, and maybe in this koan, is to move from the third place back to the generative first place and then stay there as often as possible. And then emerge, have the experience, but maybe not go too far into story well. Return again to the generative emptiness, the vast undifferentiated potential. So here's what it feels like. I'm going to do the last two lines, going backwards, going from a place of story into pure mutual emerging, maybe, if that can even be said. White frost covers the garden. The chrysanthemums clot and freeze in the night. Lucent frost dusts the courtyard. Chrysanthemum blossoms clotted there with swollen dark. Courtyard before has white frost. Dark whole chrysanthemum blossom clump. And the one thing I noticed in that particularly lit up for me that I'll close with is that Hinton said there in that generative space of origins one inhabits a place where each time the word moon is uttered the word and the moon itself emerge together into existence. When you look at the poem the word moon only shows up once. (laughs) So he's not talking about in this particular poem He's talking about living in such a way, with such a language, and in, from such a place, each time each thing is uttered, it emerges simultaneously with the word and the thought and the feeling. Anew, yeah? Then fades away each time. And that's the invitation for us. Via, Wei Zhao and Fa Yin. Come to that place, return to that place, let the self be returned to itself. And each time it, is, it comes forth, it is uttered, it's fresh and new, emerging from right there. <laughs> about Andrew Palmer and his teachings, please visit bowandroar.com and look for him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.